0: Today's is. Who's got a long weekend? Fantastic. Enjoy. (laughs) Hope that you have a blessed time. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation 2. We are continuing our series into the seven churches of Revelation. And this week, we are looking at the fourth church, Thyatira. All right, so Revelation 2, verse 18 to 29. I'll be trying to think of a story to actually start this off with, but I have nothing, so we're just going to go straight into it. Revelation 2, let's do it. All right, Uh, Revelation 2, verse 18 to 29, this is the longest of the seven letters that were written to the churches, and it goes like this, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of, their, of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I'll give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some of you call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen parts are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that we get to come and we get to look at your word and see what you have to say to us. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we speak and go through this morning, that the seed that is sown would reach fertile soil and it would grow and bear much fruit, and that you would be honored and glorified through everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, this is the longest, of the seven church, let, longest letter to the seven churches. Um, it is also, as theologians put it, the most difficult to interpret. Um, as you can see, there is a lot in there. Um, this is the one that deals with Jezebel, and this has scared a lot of people. A lot of people aren't too sure what to do with this information. and So I'm going to try my level best this morning to give you the best explanation that I can give you. Um, But I want to encourage you, and I've said this the previous weeks as well, is this is an invitation also for you to go and read through these letters in Revelation. To ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that you're trying to say to me? What is it that you're trying to say to the church? And how can we help each other through this? Um, And so, so far we have looked at the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus had unfortunately lost their first love. And so there's this invitation to come back to their first love. Then we looked at the church in Smyrna that was persecuted because of their faithfulness. And so this is one of two churches that had no criticism against him from Jesus, but an exhortation to persevere through persecution and that they were being persecuted because they had been faithful. And then last week we looked at the church in Pergamum who, who had allowed compromise to creep into the church and tolerated that. And so the encouragement was, that Jesus would come like a, like Yandere said with a two-edged sword and cut away that that had come to compromise their faith. Um, if you didn't know, this letter was written by John in about ninety four a d while he had been, uh, while he was exiled on an island called Patmos, one of the Greek islands that still exists today, um, and he had been exiled there because he had taken a stand against the Roman Empire and against Caesar worship, and he had been persecuted. And he had been, at this point, they believe he had been boiled almost to the point of death. So he was in a lot of pain. You can imagine it must have been quite a traumatic experience. And then he received this word, which was a letter from Jesus to the churches. As I've said before, these churches existed in this time. And if you were here, when Dave spoke about this in June, um, he spoke about how the order of the churches that is mentioned is also the postal route, that was then used during that time. And so this letter to the churches went along the route that the postal service used. And so these is small things that God took into account because it would have gone to the church in Ephesus first, and then it would have gone to the next church, and the next church, and the next church. They weren't all getting this letter at the same time. And so there's just an order and a flow through it. Through these letters, we have received a call, an invitation to our first love. So that the things that we do flow from a place of intimacy with the Father, and not from our own need to do works. We have learned that even in faithfulness, we will face trials and persecutions and tribulations, and we have been encouraged to persevere and to stay faithful even unto death. Last week, we learned that we need to allow the word of word of God to be with to be the truth that we stick to, allowing it to. Prune our faith of anything that does not lead us to Jesus. Interestingly enough, I've had a conversation about someone with someone about pruning this week, and before we went to the Philippines to Lloyd and Kat, I decided to prune one of my peace lilies. Um, I'm very new to planting plants and stuff, um, and but one piece lily was looking a little frazzled, a little tired, so I decided that I'm going to cut away some leaves. And I looked, at some u- watched some videos on YouTube, I uh, spent some time doing, reading some articles, and a lot of them were just like, you've got to cut away some of the good stuff too. And I said, like, but these leaves look amazing, they're green, and they- a piece lily's flout- leaves are supposed to stay up straight; they're not supposed to wilt over to the side. And so. There were, there were some leaves that looked really healthy, but they were starting to fade. And so there was this thing of just cutting that away. So even though it looked good, it was compromising the health of that plant. And that's what the Word of God does. It comes in and says, even though it might look like it's good, it's not fully alive. There's compromise that has crept in. And so the truth of God, when we're allowed to permeate our hearts, I love that word, is that it cuts away the things that sometimes... Kind of look healthy but isn't, it's not good for us. It's stuff that leaf, even though it looks good, takes away nutrients and water that is needed for the rest of the plant to glow and f- grow and flourish. And I'm not going to lie, my pl- plant used to be luscious and beautiful, and when I left, it looked very sad with a few leaves. But when I came back, there were flowers and new leaves that had grown. And so the energy that had been drained by that, that had been compromised in the plant, was used to then create something beautiful and fresh and new. And that's what the Word of God does. It comes and it cuts away that that has been compromised. And it looks scary because it looks skinny. You can see straight through it. But something new and beautiful comes out of that. There's fresh fruit that comes. So today we are going to be looking at the Church of Thyatira. Just to give you some context, Thyatira was a city that is and can be found about 80 kilometres south of Istanbul today. Um, it was famous for its dyeing f- facilities—not like dying death, but dying of cloth. Uh, it was the centre of the purple cloth trade. Um, there were more dyeing guilds or unions. Uh, in Thyatira than any other city in the Roman Empire. Um, The best way I can explain a guild is it was like a modern-day union. So this was a manufacturing city. It was a business city. It was a place where they produced a lot of things. It was a working-class city. Not like the previous cities, Ephesus, which was very influential. We had um, Smyrna, which was very beautiful. We had uh, Pergamum, Pergamon, which was very luxurious, they were very wealthy, influ- influential cities. Whereas Thyatira was one of the cities you wouldn't really want to go visit. It was just it was on the way to somewhere else. Um, maybe a little petrol station and some food, and you'd like, say hello to someone, maybe buy some clothing and then leave. So they weren't a very impactful city. Um, they were also famous for having lots of potters, tanners, robe workers, steel workers, uh, blacksmiths. Um, so a very strong, industrious, working-class city. Uh, these guilds, and I'll probably come back to it, and I'll probably repeat myself later, but these guilds or these unions would often have their meetings in the temples. So before they'd have the meeting or their discussions, they would then sacrifice food or partake in pagan rituals in the temples, and then they would have their meetings. And so you can imagine this was a bit of a dilemma for the Christian church at that time, because to work... And to be part of a guild, they would then have to enter into the temples. And the expectation would be that they would participate in what was going on. If you've read Acts, in Acts 16, we hear about the woman who was a businesswoman, Lydia, who dealt in purple cloth. And this is the first to- and only time before this section in Revelation where Thyatira is mentioned. And it talks about she was one of the fir- she was the first convert of Paul in Europe. And she was instrumental in starting the church in Philippi, the Philippian church, when she opened a home for them to come in and to meet. And it is believed that she then took this gospel message to the church in Thyatira, and this is how the church started there. (coughs) So that's a bit of context of what this church was about. And so, when we read this and we see that Jesus comes in, and I've mentioned this, is that there are seven things that Jesus does in these letters first thing he does is there's a command that the letter must be written. There's a description of who he is. There's a commendation. There's a criticism. There's an exhortation to repentance. There's a promise, and there's a call to those who hear the message, and so we're going to start with this command and this description, and in verse 18, it says, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze what I love about what Jesus does with each of these letters is he announces himself in a way that is relevant to the church that he's speaking to we saw in in Smyrna where he spoke about I'm he that was dead but I came to life and the city of Smyrna was a place that was spiritually dead and its name was came from the uh, the word mo which was used to embalm the dead But Jesus says, I I was dead and I've come to life. So he announces that a place that is spiritually dead, I am bringing life. And he talks about that. He did the same with Pergamum. He did the same with Ephesus. And he comes with a city that is a manufacturing town. He announces himself in a way that they would understand, using words like flame of fire and burnished bronze. (coughs) And so these people would have understood that the fire was used to Remove impurities from the metal. So I don't know if you've read um, in the Old Testament where it talks about that God is like the refiner's fire. And to, ref, re, to remove impurities from metal, you've got to boil it. You've got to heat it up to a very high temperature. You scrape off the top and then you, you do the process until you have a pure metal that's left. And that is how he announces himself. I am the son of God. It's the only time he proclaims who he is. Um, in the seven letters, and then he says, with eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze. See, Jesus is declaring authority as the Son of God, and he's bringing purity to the church. This church had been corrupted by a false prophet, and that they'd allow an impure message to infiltrate the church. And so the bronze represents strength and purity. The church in Thyatira was still around until 1922. So there was just the strength and purity of church which just continued. And then the Turkish Empire came through and they disbanded the church. But if you go back there now, you can still see the ruins. It's still there. Um, and there is, um, they've reestablished the church there. And so there was a strength of purity of faith that they clung to, that God honored his promise and this church endured. <coughs> And the beautiful thing is that when Jesus announces himself in a way that the church can relate, is that he's showing that there's intimacy and knowledge and love to the those that he's speaking to. He's not like someone that's coming in and just declaring and saying stuff and then moving on. No, he's saying, I know you. I've seen you. And I've said this every week. Every week, a commendation starts with, I know or I have seen. There's just this acknowledgement that Jesus knows and Jesus sees. He sees where you are at. He knows where you are at. He knows the things that you are going through. He knows the seasons that you're coming in and out of. And so there's this intimate knowledge of God saying, I know you. And I'm going to say this every time I speak this message, I know you. I see you. I want you to know this morning that God knows you and he sees you. He is not oblivious to the things that you're going through, your struggles, your pains, your joys, your triumphs. He knows and he sees. And we see this again in verse 19 where he says, I know your works, your faith and your love and your service and your patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. This is such a powerful commendation. He says, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance. See, this church had works. It had love. It had faith. It had service. It had endurance. They were spirit-filled. Not only that, they were growing and maturing. It says that your latter works are greater than, your fo- than those at the beginning. And so there was a growth and a momentum that this church had. Something was happening. A church was alive and spirit-filled. This was a church that was moving forward. And so they get this beautiful commendation that you are doing well. I think it's so important for us to take note, and I'm going to. Is that when Jesus lays his complaints against the church in Pergamum and in Thyatira, he doesn't say, all of you are doing this. He says, some of you are doing this. And so he talks to the some, and then he talks to the church as a whole. This is very important for us to, to differentiate. But the problem when things are going really well is it's easy to overlook the little foxes that creep in. When you're having a party, the last thing you want to deal with is the fact that your drain might be blocked in the kitchen sink. When you're having a good time and there's family and everything's going well, the last thing you want to think about is that the cat litter needs to be changed. And so it's easy to just overlook those things in that moment. And this is what the church in Thyatira did. Things were going well. They were growing. There was momentum. There was something happening. The spirit was there. The church was alive and well, and they were making an impact. But they overlooked, the little things that started to creep in. And this is where Jesus comes in. And actually someone asked me this week is, why are the criticisms so harsh? Or why does it seem like it's so harsh? And then why not just be nice and commend what's going on and be like, but just be careful. And I think it's so important that I heard this week is that to know the love of the Father, you also need to know the discipline of the Father. But discipline without love is harsh love without discipline is going to lead you to destruction and so there's got to be this tension between love and discipline knowing that you are loved when the discipline comes in that's what Jesus says I commend you I see you I know you I want the best for you I said last week God will fight for his church he will fight for his bride and then he comes and says but this has come up and so we need to address this And so this is what he does. He says, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so the first thing he says is you have tolerated Jezebel. And I'll come back to explain that a bit later. But the previous churches, as we've looked through it, there are two other religions that are mentioned. One is Balaam and the other one is the Nicolaitans. And so Balaam was a guy from the Old Testament we read, looked at last week, and he convinced King Balak to allow the beautiful Moabite woman to seduce the very silly Jewish men, and to get them to engage in food sacrifice to idols, and to get involved with pagan festivals, and then to engage in sexual immorality as well. And so one of the big no-nos for the Jewish Uh, Israelites at the time was that they were not supposed to mix with the Moabites. It was one of the big no-no's for them. But this happened, and she seduced them into sexual immorality and into eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. The other one is the Nicolaitans. And so as I mentioned last week, the Nicolaitans preached something very similar to what the message of Jesus was, but it was focused on hyper-grace. And so it said... You can live your licentious life. You can take, partake in any self-indulgent activity you want because there's grace. Because you will get, be forgiven if you, if you partake in sexual immorality. You'll be forgiven if you go to pagan festivals. You'll be forgiven. And so in the, on, it was a misuse of grace that the Nicolaitans were preaching. And so there was this warning against that. And so this Jezebel that is mentioned is a self-proclaimed prophet And she taught the church that it's okay to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols, even though the word had come through that this was not to be done. She used the office of a prophet to manipulate some believers into a perverse version of the gospel, again pulling them away from Jesus and promoting self-indulgence. It is believed that she encouraged the members in the church to partake in the pagan rituals of the meetings, by eating and drinking the food that had been sacrificed to the idols, and then from there to get involved in sexual practices that were part of idol worship of that time. And so as I mentioned earlier, the different guilds, so you had your blacksmiths, your cloth dyers, all of these people who had these unions, and they'd go to meetings, and the meetings would happen in the temples. They would socialize there. And so there would first be this worship portion of it, and then there would be the meeting. And so... It's believed that she was encouraging the Christians to keep going to these meetings, partake in the practices that were happening, but it was okay because you are still a Christian. It's okay. There's grace. And so this is what is believed to have happened, that you could have both God and partake in these pagan rituals. And so she was teaching an enlightened version of the truth, telling the community that it was okay to mix pagan ritual and their faith in God but I'm pretty sure that you've read your Bible and you know that God is a jealous God. That what the first commandment is, is you will worship no other God but me. And so she came and said, no, but you're worshiping God, so it's okay if you do this. And God's like, no, 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 no. It's me or that. It's not me and that. It's me or that. And so you've got to make a decision. And so, I'm going to go a bit left wing here, but the whole book of Revelation, I don't know, I grew up, with the Left Behind series books. I don't know if any of you have read those. Max LaHaye and some other guy wrote this book called The Left Behind series. If you're a little bit older than me, you might have had the 90s versions of the Left Behind movies. Those were quite scary. As a little kid watching those, I remember fear and trembling, worried about these giant serpent locust things that were going to come and sting us and kill us and wearing sackcloth and watching people's heads get chopped off. It was traumatic. Like... I was scared into salvation. Like, <laughs> fortunately, I learned to understand it later. But that's what a lot of people understood Revelation to be, like this hyper, super scary thing that just caused us a lot of fear and trepidation. And unfortunately, the thought was if we can scare them into salvation, then they'll be saved and it'll be good. But what you want people with is what they stick to. And if you are scared into salvation, you're going to have a faith that is scared of everything. A fear-filled faith. <laughs> That's a big word. <laughs> um, and so there's this thing where, where God's saying, no, it's me. I've come. Revelation is not about creating a scary, hyped-up story to fear people into salvation. No, Revelation is Jesus saying, things are going to happen, but I'm with you. Things are going to happen. Choose me. Stay with me. Seek me. I am with you, It's saying things are going to happen, make a decision. This is what the revelation is about. Revelation is about who are you going to follow, who is going to be Lord of your life. Coming back to Jezebel. So if you know, so one of the big discussions amongst theologians is whether this Jezebel lady, this is the teaching side of the scripture, was an actual person, or if it was someone operating within the spirit of Jezebel. If you don't know who Jezebel was, in 1 Kings verse 16, we hear about this woman named Jezebel. And she gets married to one of the Israeli kings, King Ahab. She was a Baal worshiper. And she managed to turn the heart of her husband to worship Baal. And so she used her influence to spread Baal worship throughout the nation of Israel at that time. She had about 850 prophets on her payroll. That's quite a lot, <laughs> um, considering Israel wasn't that big. Um, and one of the famous stories you might remember is the story where Elijah does battle against the Baal worshippers and calls down fire from the sky to burn up the altar. I'm sure you remember that. If you don't, it's in 1 Kings. All right. And so, but the thing is, Elijah feared for his life from this woman because she was a murderer. Anyone that spoke the truth of Jesus or at that point of, of God and what, who he was, she would kill. Anyone that spoke against what Baal was promoting, she would have killed. And so he actually ran for his life because she wanted him dead. And so the message that she brought in was, you can have your God, but she eradica- uh, she erected these, these Baal-worship places all over the nation. And so she infiltrated and she polluted the faith that was in that nation, saying, you can have your God, but also worship mine. And so the nation's tolerance of her and her message poisoned the nation and almost led it to complete destruction. And so the nation allowed this. They said, well, the king said we must do this, so we will do it. Instead of fighting, saying, actually, no, this is what God has called us to do, that we have been called to be a set apart and holy nation. And so we need to remember as Christians that the enemy will use any weapon that he can to attack the church. But it ultimately comes down to idolatry and compromised living. If the enemy can't get you distracted sexually, he's going to bring TV into your life. Or he's going to bring ah, gossip at work or something else. There's a different vice that the enemy is going to try and use. But ultimately, he tries to put something between you and God. And anything between me and God is an idol. And when we focus on that idol, it compromises the way that we live. So there's two big words I'm going to teach you this morning. The first one is, is orthodoxy. You probably know this one. It's quite an easy word. But how many of you know what it means? Nah, I didn't know. <laughs> so orthodoxy is your belief. It's the right belief. It's what we believe as Christians, orthodoxy. And orthodoxy leads to a word called orthopraxy which is the right practice, the way you live. And so orthodoxy determines ortho, ortho, orthopraxy. Okay, so what you believe leads to what, how you live, how you live your life. And this is what affects, so what we believe affects what we do. And this is why our works don't save us, but they prove our faith. And this is where that scripture says, faith without works is dead, because if you don't have works it shows that your faith is something that's not right in your foundation and in your faith. So if we live by what we believe, then the work that we do will naturally overflow from what we believe. And this is so important. There's a famous quote, I'm sure you've heard it. Kids don't do what you say, they do what you do. It's very scary when you have kids. (laughs) Because you can say all the things you want, you can lay all the foundations, all the theology, but if you aren't loving it, your kids are going to see what you do, and they're not going to listen to what you say. Another way we can put this in, I heard this at a, a conference last year, is that as a church, we can put all the things into play. We can have the most amazing vision, values, mission statement. We can have the best theology. We can sing the best songs. But what you tolerate is what you cultivate, so if we as a church say, we're going to stand for this, but then we don't stand for that, but we tolerate something else, that is the culture that's going to creep up and grow in the church. And this is, happens in our own lives as well. We can have the right things. We can say all the right Christian cliches, but if we, aren't, if we tolerate sin and we tolerate these things of a watered-down gospel to come into our lives, that's what's going to replicate and grow in our lives. And so if the enemy can compromise our belief foundations, he can affect the way we live. I was reading the story this week of how people learn how to recognize counterfeit money. And they don't learn how to recognize counterfeit money by feeling and looking and smelling thousands of different kinds of counterfeit money. No, what they do is they immerse themselves in the real. They will feel the real money. They'll smell the real money. They'll fold it. They'll crumple it. They will open it up. They'll hold it to the light. So they become so familiar with the real that as soon as something that is counterfeit comes in, they can recognize it immediately. And this is what we need to do as Christians. We need to be so immersed in the truth of God's Word that as soon as anything that even has a whiff of something that is compromised comes in, we can recognize it. The gift of discernment is a gift, and we can all operate in it. With the Holy Spirit, we all have the ability to discern what is right and what is, what is not. And so I want to encourage you, walk with the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, what is it that is counterfeit? What is real? Allow the w- truth of God's Word. If you read the Word of God, and you meditate on it, and you soak yourself in it, as soon as anything comes up that is not right, you'll know immediately. And that's up to each and every single one of us. It is not up to me to do it for all of us. It's not up to you, Andre, to do it for all of us. It's up to each one of us to take responsibility for the truth of God's Word in our lives. (coughs) And so one of the big things, I just want to look at this briefly, because this Jezebel was a prophetess and came in declaring the Word of God, the Word of God, we need to look at prophecy. What is prophecy? How do we weigh it up? What is its importance in the church today? And so, with that, I just want to do some housekeeping. We as a church love the prophetic. We know it's important. We know it's necessary. We celebrate the prophetic. The prophetic will never be more important than the Scripture. And that's very important for us. Because as soon as we rely on prophecy more than we rely on Scripture, we're going to have a very eccentric church. And not in a good way. And so... We love the prophetic, we welcome the prophetic, we celebrate the prophetic because we know it is the voice of God that is talking to us. And so the ways that we operate in the prophetic is one on a Friday morning during worship. If you have a prophetic word, we invite you to come to speak to one of the elders because if it's a word that is pertinent for the church in the season, we want to share that word. The prophetic is encouraging, it builds us up, it edifies, it helps, it leads, it guides And that's what the prophetic does. The prophetic is not there to condemn. It's not there to call out sin. It's not there to break down. It is there to build up and encourage the church so that she might grow and be beautiful. And so on a Friday morning, if you have a prophetic word or or a picture or something like that, you're welcome to come and share it with us. On that note, if we don't share it that morning, don't take it personally. It doesn't mean that you heard wrong or it just might be a thing of timing. It's happened before where someone has come on a Friday morning, but we only share the prophetic word a week or two later because of just the timing. Sometimes it's a word that we as an eldership team actually need to go and mull over, pray through, because it's a word that's actually for us so that we can do the best job here. The second way is in small groups. And I want to encourage you is if you have a prophetic word for someone, do not go one-on-one. The reason for that is the prophetic has to be held accountable. The word is very clear on this. It says that there has to be a testing and a weighing of the prophetic word that is given. So when you go, have a prophetic word, take someone with you, someone that you trust, someone that can go with you. So there's at least three of you, that someone that the receiver, the giver, and just someone that can be there to be like, hey, listen, you gave this person the prophetic word, but actually. Or to be like, you gave the prophetic word, it's exactly what they needed. Let's celebrate and let's testify of God's goodness. And so that's a, it's a safety mechanism for all people involved. How do we test the word? Well, the first one is, obviously the most important is, does it line up with scripture? Is it scriptural? The second one is, does it resonate with you? If someone gives you a prophetic word, but it is so left field and out of your scope, they might be off, and that's okay. This is why we have the church. It's why we have the body. This is why we hold each other accountable is that because if someone comes left field and gets it wrong, it's okay. We're all yet to learn and to grow. All right. And then the last thing, and I think most important, is does it point you to Jesus? If a prophetic word is trying to pull you away from Jesus, instead of guiding you and leading you to Jesus, but trying to manipulate you into something else, there's a big red flag right there. So does it point you to Jesus? See, the prophetic needs to be held accountable. See, many people want the prophetic, but they do not want to know or read the scriptures. They don't want to listen or ask God themselves for his direction. And so when the love of prophecy is greater than the love for scripture or relationship with God, it leads to eccentricity. And then you get all the weird things that happen. All right. And so the prophetic word will always encourage a person closer to God not into the things of this world. And as believers, we need to be able to recognize the spirit behind what is being said, to test the word and not to tolerate false prophets that would use it to manipulate and to lead the church astray. All right. Then Jesus goes into some exhortation to repentance. And we see this in Revelation 2, verse 21 to 25. In the previous scriptures that we've looked at, it's normally like like one line, This one gets a whole four verses, and it says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I'll give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And so the Father's heart is always for repentance and restoration. It says here that he has given her time to repent. And I think this is really encouraging for myself and for, I think for all of us, is that God is so Gentle and gracious with all of us. He has a woman who was leading people astray, but he says, I gave her time to repent. He gave her time. He took the time. He said, This is serious, but I'm going to give you time. God, in his love and kindness, leads us to a place of repentance, and he takes time in dealing with us, even when we do not understand or when it is undeserved. He is gentle speaking to us and waiting for us to act. He takes no pleasure in dealing with us forcefully, but we have to remember he will act. He will give us time. He will give us time. He will give us a second chance. he give us a third chance. But it comes to a point where he's like, and no more. At some point, it says, the risk to my bride is so much greater. I'm going to take a stand, and I'm going to deal with this strongly and thoroughly. And we see this. He says, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her are thrown to great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. That's some very strong language. That's, some, that's a very harsh thing. But he says, I gave her time. I've waited, I've waited, I've waited. I've been kind, I've shown mercy and grace, but no more. And he says, return to me, return to me. When it talks about her sickbed and the adultery and all her children those are not literal people who have adultery with her, and it's not the literal children. These are the people that are following her, people that get mixed up in the teachings and the ways that she is calling the church to go into. And so he's saying, I've given her time to repent, but I've also given the opportunity for the others to repent as well. He says, but if they don't, there will be a harsh consequence for that. You see, if I know one of my children is doing something that's going to cause harm to my other children, I'm going to be like, stop it. You need to stop that. Someone's going to get hurt. And maybe if they do it again three hours later, I'm going to be like, you need to stop. Someone's going to get hurt. And at some point, I'm going to forcefully remove them from that situation for the protection of the other children around. And this is what God is saying. It's like, I'm going to give a warning. I'm going to say, please stop it. I'm going to ask you to stop. And at some point, I'm going to remove that situation so that for the safety and the protection of those around him. Through dealing with those who come to hurt the church through deceit, manipulation, false teaching, and other ways, if they're unrepentant, God will act on them to save his bride, to keep her pure. Here we see that God removes her and all that follow her teaching. And this is where we see the righteous fear of God in the church. I think so often we focus on Jesus the Lamb, Jesus' baby meek and mild, but we also know that God is a lion and he fights for us. He's a roaring lion. It says that in Revelation it talks about him coming back on the white horse, with the sword in his hand, name written on his thigh, eyes like fire. There's this powerful, authoritative Jesus that we often forget about. That we, It's so easy to think about Jesus meek and mild, Jesus dead on a cross, Jesus rising from the dead, but there's a power within Jesus that we need to remember as well. Where there's a righteous fear that needs to we need to be aware of that we do not lose the awe and the wonder of who God is. <coughs> but then comes encouragement and he says, "But to the rest of you." In verse 24 it says, "But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, but hold fast what you have until I come. He says, hold fast. What are the deep things of Satan? I think if we look at the the tactics of Satan, nothing's changed since Genesis chapter 2, where the snake comes in and says, but did God really say? That's always been his tactic. When Jesus was in the desert, did God really say? If you are, you'll always come and Try to undermine God. You'll always try to come and undermine the Word of God. And so we've got to stand in the authority we've been given by Jesus to say, actually, yes, my God did say this. This is what the Word says. This is the truth of God. And so the encouragement to the rest of the church that have not fallen into this teaching says, cling to the truth. Hold fast. Hold on to Jesus. Seek the leading of the Holy Spirit with everything. Do not be led astray. Do not allow these things to bog you down. Do not allow these things to weigh on you. But seek first the kingdom. Hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to that love that you were commended for. Hold fast to your faith, to your service, to your endurance. Hold fast. You're doing well. But take a stand against the tolerance and the compromise that the world is trying to bring in. And this is so relevant to the church today because We are standing here, we're trying to hold fast to the truth, but the world is shouting so loud. We see it in TV, in music, in the books, in movies, everywhere. It is screaming in our faces, accept this, tolerate this, do this, love more, love differently. No, we love the way Jesus called us to love. We live the way Jesus has called us to live. I said this last week, but Jesus is probably the most intolerant person on this planet, because it's him or nothing. It's not Jesus and a little bit of, no, it's Jesus plus nothing. It is Jesus plus nothing. And this is a faith we have to stand for. We've got to be intolerant to the voice of the world, be like, actually, that's not what I believe. I believe in Jesus, and I love you. And because I love you, I have to take a stand. And it's going to get more difficult. There's going to be harder and harder for us to take that stand, because the world doesn't like it. It doesn't sound nice when you say, well, actually, I love you, but this is not good for you. <coughs> but there's a promise for those that do that. It says, to the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earth and pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And so there's this promise of inheritance. There's a promise that if we conquer, if we hold fast to what we have, there'll be an inheritance. The other inheritance is nations, ruling with the authority that Jesus has given us. And it reminds me of the scripture in Matthew 28, we all know it. It says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. I say unto you, therefore go. Therefore go. I've given you authority because I've received it from my Father. And so we hold onto Jesus, knowing that the inheritance he gives us is beautiful. That we get to sit in a church like this, in a nation like this, with people from all around the world, different tribes and tongues. This is just a foretaste of what heaven is going to look like. And that's inheritance that we have to look forward to when we hold fast, when we overcome. And then the last thing he says is, I will give him the morning star. He will give us Himself. In Revelation 22 verse 16, the last thing Jesus says of Himself is, I am the bright and morning star. It's the last thing Jesus says in the Scriptures. And this is a beautiful quote that I read. Lynette, can I ask you to come play up? guitar? Um, there's a, a quote by Bob Goodfied, and it says this about the morning star. The morning star often appears between two and three at night when the darkness is complete and the faintest sign of morning is not yet visible. So small that it threatens to vanish. The star seems unable to vanquish the overpowering darkness. Yet, when you see the morning star, you know that the night has been defeated. For the morning star pulls the morning behind it just as certainly as Jesus pulls a kingdom behind him. And so when Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star, he's speaking about himself who brings us from darkness into light. Or speaking of bringing a kingdom into the world, exposing the darkness and bringing in light. And so this is beautiful promise that he will give us himself. He will lead us, he will guide us, and he'll bring us into a place of freedom. And so we're going to do communion. Uh, We'll do it this morning where you come and collect. Yeah. Um, But I'm just constantly reminded that um, in Psalm 23, where it says, even though I walk through the valley of the darkest, I will fear no evil. And it goes on to say how he prepares a pasture for us, a place of rest, a place of peace. But ultimately, he says, you've prepared a table for me in the midst of my enemy. And so this is what the communion table is. It is a table that's been prepared for us in the midst of our enemy. When we come to the communion table, it's a a place of remembrance. Jesus, you died for me. You rose again. Your body was broken so that I can walk in healing. Your blood was spilled so that I might be saved. And the beautiful thing is that when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, and he took his last breath, the veil was torn. And I think I've said this before, but the veil was about 27 centimeters thick. And it ripped from top to bottom, and the presence of God was let out. Before one person could go into that place once a year to atone for sin. And in that moment when Jesus died, that veil was torn, and the presence of God came where we can come into the presence of God at any moment. We live in the presence of God. Bill Johnson puts it this way. It's like the presence of God is like a dove on your shoulder. When you have a dove on your shoulder, you live differently. You're not going to move quickly. You're not going to make any sudden noises. You're going to live conscious, con- continuously aware of the presence of this bird on your shoulder. And that's what the presence of God is like, is when we live purposely and intentionally, knowing we have the presence of God with us, we live differently. And in that moment when Jesus cried, it is finished and the veil was torn, the presence of God was released. And we were given full access to the presence of God. And then Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star. I will give you that morning star. I will lead you. I will guide you. I'll be with you. I will lead you from darkness into light. I'll lead you from Prison into victory. I will lead you from brokenness into breakthrough. I'll lead you from tribulation into restoration and joy. I'll lead you from mourning into dancing. I'll lead you, come with me, come with me. It's this invitation of come with me. And so I'm gonna ask Lynette if we can just play, maybe sing a song. And I want you to come, we're gonna collect the elements and in your time, either by yourself or with your family, back like, God, I want to thank you for what you've done. I want to thank you for your body that was broken. I want to thank you for your blood that was spilled. I want to thank you for salvation. I want to thank you that you lead us and you guide us. And yet you are our morning star that has brought us to a place from darkness to light, from prison to victory, from brokenness to restoration. So Father, just thank you. I thank you for what you have done for us. I thank you that in the midst of... All these things, Father God, you are so patient, you are so kind, you are so gentle in your approach, that your call to repentance is one that is given over and over and over with grace and love and with mercy. And as your was is earlier, Father God, like if there's anything in our hearts as we come to this table, would you forgive us? We repent of the things that we've done, the things that we've allowed to creep in, the things that have separated us from you. Father, I pray, Lord, and I thank you that your word that says there is no height, no depth. There is nothing that can separate us from your love. So, Father, we thank you.